It's Tuesday, May the 18th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That means I have the great privilege of introducing the three stars of our show, three Hoover Institution senior fellows whom we jokingly refer to as the Good Fellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosebury and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is a former presidential national security advisor, and we are proud to have him here at the Hoover Institution as the Fawada Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Hi, Neil. Hi, John. Great to be with you and our, and our special guest today. Yes, and Neil would be our third good fellow, Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is, of course, a renowned historian and author. His latest book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, came out two weeks ago. Neil, thanks for taking time out, take a little time off for the book tour to talk to us today. It's great to be with you, and I'm really excited about our special guest, too. Yes, so our special guest today, gentlemen, as we're talking about national security and global affairs, we're in for a treat today. Our guest is Robert Gates. Robert M. Gates served as U.S. Secretary of Defense from 2006 to 2011, the only Secretary of Defense in U.S. history to be asked to remain in that office by a newly elected president. He also served in the Bush 41 administration as Director of Central Intelligence, the only career officer in the CIA's history to rise from entry-level employee to director in all 27 years as an intelligence officer. Secretary Gates also is the author of 2020's Exercise of Power, American Failure, Successes, and a New Path Forward in the Post-Cold War World, now out in paperback. I believe this is, by the way, the first time we've had on this show an Eagle Scout as our guest. Uh, Robert Gates, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you. Happy to be with you all. So, Secretary Gates, back in the day, back in your Washington days, as we like to say, you like to call yourself the Eeyore of the national security community. Eeyore, of course, being the famously pessimistic donkey. Uh, question, sir, are you today still an Eeyore? And if so, what has you in Eeyore mode? What country, what nation, what <laughs> conflict, what, what theater of the world has you feeling that way? Actually, I was labeled as the Eeyore by the Washington Post um, for my um, pessimistic view that uh, uh, about the Soviet Union and the likelihood that Gorbachev's reforms would succeed. Uh, so they thought that I was able to find the, the darkest cloud and the brightest sky. Um, but if I were to consider myself an Eeyore today, it would be, I think, um, on, in three areas. Uh, the first and foremost is the, is the, um, competition, the rivalry, whatever you want to put, call it, with China that promises to stretch uh, for a very long time into the future. And frankly, our lack of preparedness to carry on that competition. Um, unlike the Cold War, uh, I would say unlike the Soviet Union, um, China is a multidimensional power and uh, has invested greatly in non-military instruments of power that I write about in the book. Uh, and we have essentially disarmed ourselves in those areas um, for all practical purposes. The second uh, would be Russia and Putin's uh, determination to be a disruptor. Uh, Russia is not a long-term challenge to the United States for global influence, uh, as far as I'm concerned but it does have enormous capacity to be a disruptor and to create problems inside the democracies and, uh, and foment trouble um, internally and between the democracies. And the third, uh, as I write in the book, I think cyber is the most dangerous uh, weapon of all because it is so versatile. It can be used against, uh, in political terms, as we have seen in our elections, the French elections, the, Brit, uh, the Brexit vote, uh, and efforts to uh, create problems inside uh, the democracies. It can be used economically, as we have just seen with the colonial pipeline uh, and many other instances, uh, including the Russian attacks on um, uh, Estonia in 2008 and a variety of other instances. And it can be used as a weapon uh, and against weapon systems uh, to disable, uh, redirect, uh, or otherwise uh, disarm 
um, countries that um, that rely on sophisticated uh, technologies for their weapons. So those are three things about which I am concerned, and and I am particularly concerned about the first China and the third uh, cyber, uh, because frankly I think our government is not prepared or organized to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Traditionally on this show, John Cochran takes over at this point, but that's not going to happen this week, John. I'm I'm beating you to the punch because there is a question I'm burning uh, to ask uh, Secretary Gates. In 2007, uh, you said, really directing your fire at uh, Vladimir Putin, one Cold War was quite enough. But as I listen to you now, I'm wondering if, uh, nevertheless, we are having another Cold War, only it's, it's with China rather than with the Soviet Union. What are your thoughts as someone who uh, saw very well the nature of the first Cold War about what increasingly feels like Cold War II to me? Well, I, it may be a semantic um issue, but I think that in some ways uh, to refer to it as Cold War II is an oversimplification because the first Cold War, while it was uh, fought against uh, the backdrop of the greatest arms buildup in the history of the world on both sides, um, was was really uh, in the non-military arena where, where the actions actually were decisive. Uh, it was non-military instruments of power on the part of the United States that played a big part in victory. So the, the economic constraints that we put on the Soviet Union, the restraints uh, on technology transfer that we sustained for many decades with our allies uh, that impacted both their economy and their, uh, uh, and their military, I think, uh, it, it essentially was uh, the the Soviet Union was a was a unidimensional power. It, w- it was a military power that had oil and gas, whereas China is a much more sophisticated, much more complicated challenge for the United States in the sense of their economic power, their integration into the global economy, uh, their their initiatives such as Belt and Road. Uh, Hu Jintao in the early 2000s invested $7 billion in a strategic communications capability. So in a way, one thing that is common to the Cold War is that both sides have such, economic, such military power that a military conflict would be catastrophic for both and for the world. And so unless there's a terrible miscalculation this competition will be carried out in the non-military arenas. And, and that's where, as I suggested earlier, the, the Chinese are far more sophisticated and far more capable, not only compared to the Soviet Union, but I would argue today compared to us. But I, I just think comparing it to the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union is an oversimplification of the challenge that China presents to the United States. And again, if John were John were in charge here, he'd ask the next question. But I'm not going to do that because I'm I'm a, a gentleman. I'll, I'll let HR ask the next question. <laughs> hey, Secretary Gates. You know, in in the last the last chapter, uh, I mean, I, I agree with all your points on on China throughout that chapter. I think it's a, a great chapter in in the book and. You know, but the one thing I would like to kind of press you on a little bit is you kind of lament the fact that there isn't a strategy. Well, you know, as the person who was charged with developing the strategy and I think helping to pull together all elements of, of national power, what you call in your, in your excellent introduction, you know, the, the American uh, sym- you know, sy- uh, symphony of power, uh, I, I would say I think there is, there, is, <laughs> there is a strategy. And I think if you look at the specific actions that were taken overall across the Trump administration, right, uh, you know, kind of reinventing development finance, uh, taking a number of actions against Chinese economic aggression by stepping up the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, as well as, as restricting U.S. investments in China that were redounding to our disbenefit, uh, confronting China with some trade enforcement mechanisms to get their attention on on uh, on the failure to reciprocate in terms of equal access to the market and and problems over over. Um, you know, over theft of intellectual property or forced transfer, 
the December 2018 indictments with 12 other countries, indictments and sanctions placed on APT-10, uh, for, for example, uh, and then the broad range of diplomatic initiatives to call out China, you know, for uh, its uh, its repression of, of freedom, the genocidal campaign against the Uyghurs, you know, the the designation uh, of of that action as as a genocide, the sanctions associated with that, uh, international diplomatic efforts uh, to to work with Japan and others uh, within the World Trade Organization to to bring forward actions there against. China, the reinvigoration of the quad. I mean, I could go on, right? So when you look at all this and now look at what's happening on the Hill with uh, the carry on of the work that the administration was doing on the Hill with the Strategic Competition Act of 2021 and and the Endless Frontiers Act, which you make the point we have to invest in ourselves as well to compete. Um, What's missing? Because I mean, what I see is a strategy. And I think a lot of people, including you, have said, okay, hey, there's not a strategy. But I think there actually is one, of course, imperfectly implemented and probably, as you indicate, insufficient to do the job. I guess the question is, what more would you like to see? What do we need to really focus on in terms of, of this competition with China? And, and, uh, and, and, and what do we have to do you know, to, to catch up for the years of, I think, uh, of complacency you know, associated with the flawed assumptions that you, uh, that you point out in the, in the chapter on China? Well, most of the actions that you've described are actions that we have taken against China. Um, I would say even there, um, there have um, there have been some uh, some gaps, and I would say one of the one of the deficiencies in the in the Trump administration's approach uh, in a number of these areas was, in fact, uh, its um, disdain of our alliances and our allies. And while we may have um, had some overtures and some actions with South Korea and Japan, uh, the fact of the matter is, I mean, just think if we were negotiating when, when the Trump administration was pressing its economic agenda against China, uh, whether it was reciprocity and investment and joint ventures and so on and intellectual property and so on and so forth, just think of the difference it would have made if instead of the Chinese on one side of the table and us on the other side of the table, our side of the table also included Japan and Australia and the EU and India. And we all had a concerted set of talking points that basically said, these are the rules that everybody is gonna play by. And we represent 60% or 70% of the global economy. And if you wanna be a player, you're gonna have to agree to these rules as well. But instead, most of those actions were bilateral against China, and and I think much weaker than they than they otherwise uh, could have been. I would also argue that a big piece of what's missing, and in in our uh, overall strategy, and I just talked about it um, in brief, was the absence of strategic communications. Uh, the Congress dismantled USIA, United States Information Agency, and uh, 1998, uh, they tried to abolish USAID, and Clinton wouldn't let them do that. Uh, but it was relegated to a small, to becoming subordinate to, and then just a part of, of the State Department. Um, Hu Jintao, in in the early 2000s, as I said, invested seven billion dollars in a strategic communications uh, capability for China. They have, they have developed a very uh, uh, a significant network all over the world, buying up radio and television stations, by uh, in bringing uh, to bear their uh, propaganda, creating a Confucius Institutes, uh, hundreds of Confucius Institutes that basically are just instruments of Chinese propaganda for all practical purposes, uh, and a host of other strategic communications capabilities that we, we haven't even begun to match. And there's been no attention in our government to trying to recreate those capabilities. And, and what's worse, it's not a matter of just recreating them, it's reimagining how United States strategic communications could take place. When I became secretary and we were in the hunt and, and, and uh, Bin Laden was still communicating, I turned to the people around me and I said, how is it that the country that invented public relations as being outcommunicated by a guy in a cave. And, and that hasn't changed. That was 2000, end of 2006, and, and here we are in uh, 2021. 
So I think there are some significant gaps in, in what we've been able to do. We have not been able to, we haven't figured out a way effectively to compete with Belt and Road. I agree that the, that the Build Act that got rid of OPIC and created the new development investment uh, uh, organization was a step forward. It doubled the capitalization to $60 billion. I think the Congress is trying to raise that to $100 billion. But compared with the magnitude of the Chinese Belt and Road effort, uh, it's minuscule. And we can't compete dollar for dollar with those guys. But what's been missing is a creative, uh, innovative U.S. approach to the private sector on how do we work between the government and the, and the private sector to partner and incentivize U.S. companies and Western companies to invest in developing countries in projects that actually matter, that doesn't involve them in a debt trap, that actually employs and trains their people, and that are actually a good for the people of those countries. We have some real opportunities and sales pitches, if you will, for those kinds of things, but we haven't, haven't really done that at all. So I would say there's a, there are big pieces of this that are missing. And, and, and then I would say we, we are only beginning to address the other side of the equation is how do you persuade the Chinese and others that we are not a declining power? And I think the investment at, at a minimum, the uh, infrastructure bill that is being, or bills that are being talked about, as long as we're talking about real infrastructure uh, and you know, from broadband to whatever, and, and as long as we're talking about new investments in science and technology and basic research in this country, that sends a signal that we can, that you better not underestimate American resilience. But we're only just getting started on those things. We haven't even passed the bills yet. So, so that's a, there's a long runway ahead on, on that. So I think in all of these areas, there is still a, a lack of a comprehensive integrated strategy. And I would just say one more thing about strategic communications. The other thing is the failure of the American government to figure out how to do this in a coherent uh, manner. You have, because you have multiple pieces of the American government all with their own strategic communications. You've got CIA, you've got the Defense Department and different parts of the Defense Department. You've got the State Department, you've got the White House, you've got the NSC, you've got the Commerce Department and so on and so forth. And no one is orchestrating a message uh, from all of those different agencies in terms of how, how you move forward. All of the radios that the American government sponsored are under the Agency for Global Media that takes no direction from the American government. It's $700 million a year of taxpayer money and the president of the United States can't say, why don't you pay a little attention to the Uyghur problem? Or why don't you pay a little attention to the corruption problem in Iran? And, and so pulling all that together is missing. And, and those are the kinds of things that I have in mind when I talk about the lack of, a, of an integrated strategy. Uh, we have a weekly uh, debate uh, on China, and I, I'm usually the one who says um, manage mercantilism and being better communist is not the answer. If you want to stop being a declining power, stop being a declining power. Domestic growth, which doesn't really come from stimulus bills, especially the kind that, that they're doing. If you want an international message, you have to start with believing in yourself. You have to have 17, uh, 1776, not 1619 being the message that you're sending out to the world. Uh, but I don't want to take that bait. Uh, I want to flip back to something you said earlier um, uh, about cyber and unpreparedness. Um, my job on this show <clears throat> is to be every man, because I don't know that much about international policy, and I'll represent our listeners who uh, like me. But uh, um, we're aware of hacks like uh, shutting down an oil pipeline. Uh, but there's kind of a belief out there that there's, uh, you know, big offices at the NSA that know how to do all sorts of interesting things um, uh, and are, are fighting a quiet cyber warfare. And, and surely they've thought of this problem before, um, even within the, the, I study financial markets and, and, you know, even though the Fed is now um, uh, careening towards climate change and inequality, uh, you, you get them privately and say, oh yeah, number one is cyber. We're really worried about that. I mean, uh, making the ATMs go dark 
from my point of world would be even worse than making pipelines uh, go dark. Um, but to hear an ex, so the average person sort of thinks, well, there's this, uh, you know, these offices out there where, uh, you know, gr great people know what they're doing in the US government. To hear a ex-Secretary of Defense say we're horribly unprepared for cyber, <laughs> especially if what we're heading for with China is going to be a sub-military test of wills. Um, uh, that sounds profoundly scary. So I'd like you to uh, expand a little bit on, on where you see our vulnerabilities in cyber and uh, what we ought to be doing about it. So John, it, it does scare me. And, and, and here's, here's what I see as the problem. We have the technology to deal with this problem but the technology is all in NSA, the National Security Agency. And they have um, some extraordinary capabilities. And at least when I was secretary and to the best of my knowledge to date, classified military networks have not been hacked. And that's because NSA has this umbrella of protection and can react quickly. Uh, the the problem that we have is a policy and a political problem and a structural problem. Um, and so first of all, the problem, uh, the, the biggest problem was illustrated um, in the solar winds and the micro, uh, Microsoft exchange uh, hacks. And the problem there was that the way that the Russians and the Chinese structured those was that they emanated from servers inside the United States. And NSA has no authority to deal with a threat that emanates from inside the United States. That's the responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security. The problem is the Department of Homeland Security has no in no capability to deal with cyber. The real capabilities in the United States are in the National Security Agency. Now, Secretary of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano and I tried to fix this in 2010 because we recognized over a decade ago, this was a problem. And that we had to be to defend our networks we had to be in a position where the Department of Homeland Security could instantly task NSA to protect a network that was under attack, literally instantly. And the way we got past the, the, the problem is NSA by law cannot be active inside the United States, except under very special circumstances and court orders and various other things. And what we did was a simple bureaucratic fix, which was to have a senior DHS officer double-hatted as a deputy director of NSA with the authority to task NSA real time and with firewalls put in place to ensure that the protections with respect to privacy uh, of and, and well, privacy for Americans would be protected. And, and the, the bureaucracy, and we got that done literally in about three weeks. And we got President Obama to sign off. Grudgingly, the Justice Department and various others uh, signed off. But we basically bypassed the, by the bureaucratic process. And Napolitano and I just cut this deal and got the president's approval for it. <clears throat> The bureaucracy, primarily at DHS, made sure that did not work, but that was a fix. But I would say within months, it was not working and, and it has not worked since. So the problem continues today and I think has been exacerbated. So here's the bureaucratic situation that we face today. So in the White House, we now have a national cyber director. The guy who's been nominated to run that's a former director of a former deputy director of NSA, and by everything I've heard, is a very competent, capable person. He's still up for confirmation on the Hill. But there's also a deputy national security advisor for 
cyber and emerging technologies. So who convenes, who at the White House is in charge? Who is convening the interagency to begin to deal with the cyber threat? Is it the national cyber czar or is it the deputy national security advisor that runs the inter interagency process? That's the basic problem with cyber. It is not a technology problem. It is a policy and a structural problem in our own government. If this, Gordon, if before this your what, next question, can I just interject? I just want to follow on this one. <laughs> just an observation, just an interjection. What's really disturbing is that what Secretary Gates is describing is very reminiscent of the situation with respect to pandemic preparedness in 2019. The same multiple agencies with some vague responsibility, no clear uh, order of battle, no clear command structure, and as a result, pandemic preparedness plans that didn't actually work when there was a, plan, or, a pandemic. Or, or, how, or how about 9-11 or Pearl Harbor, for that matter, right? So, I mean, it, it, it does come back to, to the me, need to coordinate and integrate you, across departments me, and agencies. So let me, let me give you an example of, of, a, of a threat that was not a threat, an immediate threat to the United States, but where an action taken by the president actually brought coherence and an integrated approach by the United States to dealing with a big problem effectively. And that was the AIDS problem in Africa in the Bush administration, Bush 43, and PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan uh, for AIDS Relief. And what the president did, he didn't create a new bureaucratic structure. There were multiple agencies that had a piece of that pie and nothing much was happening. The president said, all right, I'm gonna fix this. So the first thing he did was designate, in effect, the, the coordinator for AIDS relief in the State Department. But more importantly than designating this person, he gave that person authority over all the budgets in the government having to deal with AIDS relief and the coordination of the activities of all those agencies. Those agencies couldn't spend a dime without it going through this coordinator. And what you ended up with was an amazingly, and, and the president then went to Congress and got a huge amount of money uh, to help fund this. And it ended up saving literally tens of millions of lives. But it showed, and it's an example that I use in the book, of where the president can empower, the, it's all, to, to your point, John, it's all about the president. And it's about the president saying, here's who's gonna be in charge. He has my writ and he's got control of all the money and you're all gonna do what he says. And you can make these work, these kinds of things work, but it takes presidential leadership and basically, cutting through all of the bureaucratic BS. Hey, can I just, I just want to plug, that is a great chapter in the book, by the way. And I, I just want to tie it to your point too, on that we don't do a good job telling our story. That's a, that's a great story. Uh, and, and you cover also development efforts. You summarize them, I think, uh, page 33 to 35 in the beginning of the book. And, and I think it's, I hope Americans read that and then and regain some confidence in our ability to make a, a positive difference in the world. So I just wanted to make that plug as we go back to, uh, I think John still has a follow-up. Actually, actually, I'd like to turn the secretary's attention to a corner of the world that did not make the EOR list, and that's the Middle East. Um, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, and if we're going to talk about Israel and Hamas, we have to dot the, uh, we have to connect it to Iran. So, uh, question, Secretary Gates, how do you see the current struggle playing out? And then, secondly, what is our long-term strategy vis-a-vis -vis Iran? I think we've sort of wrapped all our our eggs in this administration, at least so far, in its early days, in in renewing the JCPOA, which is not almost certainly not going to happen. Um, I think that I think that the 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 weaponry and the militancy of Hamas uh, is very much tied to Iranian influence uh, in Hamas. The truth is the UAE wanted out of the struggle in Yemen as quickly as they, as they saw it wasn't going anywhere. And now there are some signs that the Saudis are even interested in figuring out how do you bring this thing to a close. Um, but I think, I think that um, 
it's not clear to me uh, what Hamas's agenda is other than sort of um, pretending to stand up for the Palestinian people. My one worry there is that is that while the governments want to preserve this relationship with Israel, um, the Arab street is not very favorably disposed. And the question is, if domestic pressures uh, in some of the Arab states begin to exert pressure on their governments to take a more, a stronger stand against what, what Israel has done. Of course, the irony in all of this is that one more time, Hamas has saved Bibi Netanyahu. Right. Um, and you know, I, I, I was joking with someone on a call earlier today, you know, back in the late 80s, there were a lot of people in the Soviet Union that suspected that Gorbachev was a CIA agent because who else could more effectively destroy the Soviet Union than the things he was doing? And you have to wonder whether whether Bibi's got some line into uh, Hamas uh, because every time he gets his, himself in a jam, uh, Hamas seems to pull him out of it. Um, but I, you know, I think that the one of the worrying things that should be worrying to the Israelis is that I think for the first time you're seeing the Arabs inside Israel come into the street and seeing violence between the Jewish, uh, Jewish people in, in Israel and the Arab citizens of Israel. Uh, and it's gotten pretty violent and that may be pretty tough to put back in the box. You may you may have a ceasefire with Hamas, but the question is whether what what the longer term consequences of that are for Israel. The U.S. Uh, I think this is the U.S. approach of hands off. Essentially, I guess the President has in the last day called for a ceasefire at some uncertain time in the future. Uh -huh. But essentially, it's part and parcel of the Biden administration's desire just to walk away from the Middle East and and believe that they can pivot their attention to uh, to the Far East, to China. Um, um, and as much as we want to get out of the Middle East, the Middle East uh, seems not to want to let go of us. But I think I think what's been interesting to me is uh, is the U.S. hands-off approach to this thing. Do you think uh, i think i heard you say that the iran deal would be very difficult if not impossible to resuscitate i'd like to hear you explain why and also to give us some commentary on what seemed to me a successful feature of the trump administration's foreign policy namely the way in which it focused on improving israel's relationship with its uh, Arab neighbors and near neighbors and essentially downgraded the Palestinian issue. It seems to me not coincidental that things have erupted uh, since the new administration came in and signaled a return to the, the policies of the Obama administration. Uh, I don't think it's all about BP's political survival, though I, like you, have, have been tempted to make that joke. In reality, it feels as if the Biden administration is doing a strange thing. It's continuing the, Biden, the Trump administration's China policy, but reversing the Middle Eastern policy. So help us think about that broader geopolitical context within which this crisis in, in Israel and, uh, and Gaza is playing out. Well, I, I, do, I don't see that there's actually a strategy here on the part of the administration other than wanting to not be engaged uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that they had a, um, I, I think the, the early signals were that they were supportive of the Abraham Accords and, and thought that was probably a, a positive uh, development in the, in the Middle East. I think that the 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 big step for the Trump administration that separated it from its predecessors was seeing the Middle East in a more strategic sense and deciding that re resting everything on progress and and um, getting a deal between Israel and the Palestinians for a two state had basically uh, stymied every other potential strategic development in the region. And so the Trump administration essentially set aside the Palestinian issue 
and focused on the broader strategic relationships between Israel and and the and the and the Arab states, and particularly uh, the Gulf states. But I don't I don't see that um, uh, if 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 anything, um, I think it's it's the impression that the administration doesn't want to get engaged in the Middle East that has the biggest impact on developments right now, rather than a strategy on the part of the administration to overturn something that the Trump administration had done. Hey, Sutrigates, isn't this tied to a broader movement toward disengagement from the world broadly? I mean, you're right. Yeah, you're right in the exercise of power about how you lamented the Obama administration's uh, approach toward the region of just seeing disengagement as an unmitigated good. But, you know, listening to Ben Rhodes sometimes sounds like it's Rand Paul throwing his voice, right? There are wings of both political parties that that argue for our disengagement from complex problem sets abroad. H- what's your view of the landscape these days? And, and your book makes this case, but what might we do, we do better to make it a case for sustained, a sustained, reasoned and sustainable approach to foreign policy? So President Trump was uh, criticized a lot for uh, his quote unquote America, uh, America first strategy. Yeah, you took a shot at me in your book about that too, on, the, on that, uh, on that op-ed. Right. But if you read the rest of it, you no, know, it no. makes a case for values, but that's okay. It's okay. It's all right. That's right. If it, if it helps, if it helps get your point across, I, I'm totally up for it. But my, <laughs> so what I started to say, HR, was that in reality, America first is the responsibility of every president. Every president essentially takes an oath to protect and defend the United States and to advance uh, and and by extension, extend and expand American power and influence. And, And so the question is not America first, the question is how you implement that policy. How do you get to that objective? And and I believe that that our interests are best served, our longer term interests are best served by in fact remaining engaged in the world, by remaining uh, an active player. We have a, we still have a unique convening power of bringing people together to deal with global problems. Uh, and whether that's effective or not is another question. But, but no one trusts the Russians or the Chinese to deal with global problems. Um, and even countries that are not friendly to the United States are willing to come to a meeting the US convenes to talk about some of these problems. And, and, I, and this goes back to one of my criticisms of, of the Trump administration and in in its failure and the president's unwillingness to see our allies and our alliances as as a unique asset for us in advancing American interests around the world. Now, we have to, and the distinction that I draw in the book is there is a distinction between exercising international leadership and being the world's cop. And and it's it's the 20 years of military engagement with no successful outcome that I think has soured a lot of Americans on global engagement because they're synonymous for a lot of Americans that if we're gonna be engaged, that means our kids are gonna go over there to fight. And what, what the burden on, on this administration and its successors is to show that the United States doesn't have to be in, in sending its troops all over the world to in, engage in internal fights in other countries or to try and impose democracy on other countries. That's different than exercising international leadership and advancing our interests. And it's that distinction that I think has, has been the problem. So my favorite example of, all, of how you exercise international leadership in the context of my book is Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower comes to power in 1953. He confronts the Korean War. He has the Joint Chiefs of Staff twice recommend that he use nuclear weapons, once to help the French at Dien Bien Phu, another time against the Chinese. He has repeated crises over Taiwan and the Taiwan Straits. He has a war in the Middle East involving our closest allies. Uh, He has revolutions in Hungary and Poland and East Germany. 
a revolution in Cuba, uh, all these other things going on. And yet from the time Eisenhower initialed the Korean armistice in July of 1953 until he left office in January of 1961, not one American soldier lost his life in combat. Now that's exercising American leadership in the way I think it ought to be exercised. You've given me the perfect segue into a question I've been itching to ask you for many years. You started your illustrious career as an historian. I think you've got a, a BA, an MA, and a PhD in history. And I'd love you to talk a little bit more about how historical knowledge has influenced you in the various roles that you've played at CIA and at, at Defence. We have a long-standing uh, interest in applying history uh, to political problems here at the Hoover Institution. It's one that our newish director, Condi Rice, is a big fan of. But talk a bit about how history is, has helped you make some difficult calls in, in your career, because that analogy with Eisenhower is one that really, really resonates with me. But tell us more. Well, so I, I started at CIA. Uh, my PhD is in Russian and Soviet history. And I started at CIA as a Soviet analyst and did that for a good part of the first part of my career. And, and most of, no one else in the office that I worked in that worked on Soviet foreign policy um, had a background in Russian and Soviet history. Uh, they were mostly political scientists and American people who'd studied American history and so on. And, and, and so their view of the Soviet Union very often was, this is just another state. This is another authoritarian state. And when I would argue that ideology mattered to the Soviet leaders, they would poo-poo that. And what I never was able to successfully convince some of them of was the fact that ideology did not shape their did not shape specific decisions, but it was the lens through which they saw the world, and and this kind of Manichaean view of the world and. And uh, it gave them enormous amount of flexibility because the ideology didn't constrain them from taking any action that they wanted to, but it still shaped their worldview. And so I think that was one place early in my career where my um, his, uh, background uh, in Russian and Soviet history uh, certainly impacted my uh, my view, and I fast forward to um, um, the Gorbachev period, and and I would say uh, part of part of what Gorbachev did, I got wrong, and part I got right. The part I got wrong was that I, it was it beyond my ken that a Soviet leader would uh, take actions that uh, in foreign policy that would essentially reverse the Brezhnev doctrine and that you never retreat from any place you've put your foot down and, and so on. So I, I once bet uh, a whole $20 on the fact that the Soviets wouldn't get out of uh, Afghanistan in 1988. And I lost that bet. Um, but where I got it right was in understanding that Gorbachev was destroying the pillars on which the Soviet regime stood. Um, that, that he, even Gorbachev, didn't understand that terror and force were the sustaining elements of the Soviet Union. And once you removed the fear first the nationalities and then the Russians themselves would rebel. And that's the part I got right. And also the fact that he was destroying the, the Stalinist bureaucracy that at a minimum allowed the Soviet Union to survive. But Gorbachev never embraced market economics. And so he had nothing to replace. Once he destroyed the Soviet, the, the Stalinist bureaucracy, 
he had no ideas on how to replace it or how to fix it. So I think those are two examples of, and both having to do with the Soviet Union, where I think my background as a, uh, in history helped. But I would also say when I became secretary and was dealing with Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, uh, I would say that my reading of history, and I've read a lot of history, um, made me more cautious. I was very concerned about our footprint in, uh, in Afghanistan. I was very concerned about trying to create a government in, uh, in Afghanistan that, the, that Afghanistan had never had in its whole history. Uh, and in terms of a powerful central government uh, and so on. I was concerned about trying to impose democracy in two countries that in thousands of years of history had never had anything close to it uh, and, and so on. So I, you know, I, I think that, um, and, and one of the things of, of in my lifetime, the two presidents that, the, and in fact, the only two presidents who read a lot of history were Harry Truman, and Richard Nixon. Could I follow up on this? So you have a very deep insight here that ideology matters and it mattered to the Soviet Union. I'd like you to uh, apply that today. Um, <laughs> with there's a, so the Chinese have an ideology, whatever the secrets of Xi Jinping thought is, uh, although they still seem to believe in meritocracy, which uh, um, is an important feature of how we do things. The Iranians uh, view uh, the world through some ideological prisms, um, which by the way, the Chinese ideology is not, does not seem to be one that's particularly appealing to anyone outside of China. Uh, and the US uh, now has an increasingly clear ideology um, of how many parts of the US, including the administration now in charge, uh, sees ourselves as fundamentally guilty colonialist and so forth, not exactly a uh, crusading uh, power. So um, where do you see the blinders of ideology to facts as uh, leading us in, in the world going? And of course, there's the, there's the noisy kleptocracies that you listed early, earlier, uh, which I don't, I don't think ideology is particularly important to Putin at the moment, although perhaps a rallying, some nationalism is a rallying cry to, uh, to his people. But this seems, if this was an important force limiting the Russians and their ability to make good decisions, it's possibly an important force limiting the US and its ability to be to make good decisions to, to stay forceful and, and certainly an important force in where China goes. So, so how do you apply that same insight today? Well, I think that I think that communist ideology basically is dead. Um, and I don't think, uh, you know, they, the Chinese Communist Party may call itself communist, but um, I th the, the ideology that I think drives uh, China today is, um, is, is a nationalist uh, authoritarianism. And, and in fact, John, I would disagree to this extent. I think the authoritarian model actually has a fair amount of appeal in a variety of places around the world. Uh, and, and, and in some ways, it's far more dangerous than communism ever was because its roots go all the way back to the beginning of human history. And, and there are, you know, I mean, that is a model of government that has been a around a lot longer than democracy, a lot longer than the Greeks and uh, not to mention the UK or the US and so on. So I think that's a model that, that a lot of countries uh, have uh, that, that, that appeals to them, whether it's uh, Orban in uh, Hungary or, um, a variety of others around the world. Um, I I think that first of all, and maybe I'm maybe I'm naive in this respect. I believe that that this sort of new ideology here in this country of our 
historical burden and so on, that may, that may appeal in some quarters, but I don't think most of the American people believe that for a minute. And, and uh, I mean, I think, I think most Americans believe that we have a lot of problems and a lot of flaws, but I also think that most Americans take some pride in the fact that almost uniquely, maybe uniquely in the world, we recognize and talk about our problems and try to, f and have a long history of aspiring to fix them and to do better. And that we're the only country in the world that actually faces up to that reality and, and tries to move forward. So I, you know, just based on talks that at least until a year ago, I gave all over the country and having led one university, been a chancellor at another university and so on. I think, I think that's where, and maybe, and maybe I'm influenced in this by also, maybe I'm too idealistic having been the national president of the Boy Scouts. Uh, but I, I think most Americans uh, do not see us uh, as, as a particularly evil uh, country, but rather as, as one that is still a model for the rest of the world, despite all of our problems, uh, because we recognize our problems, talk about our problems, and try to fix our problems. Secretary Gates, you're telling us you have an inner idealist, and there's an inner Eeyore. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts, it sounds like here, <laughs> sir, but we could go on for another hour. There's a lot we didn't get to. We didn't get to Taiwan. We didn't really talk about military preparedness, but we're going to have to cut off now. Uh, Secretary Gates, thanks for joining us today. We surely appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of Goodfellows, but fear not, we'll be back next week with a new episode, a new topic, a new conversation. We've referenced the beginning, Secretary Gates, a book that came out last year. The title is Exercise of Power, American Failure, Successes, and a New Path Forward in a Post-Cold War World. Go to Amazon and get it. Also get Neil Ferguson's Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, and make it a three-for. Get H.R. McMaster's to Battlegrounds, defending the fight to defend the free world. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, our special guest today, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.